You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas here for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with my delightful colleagues, Dr. Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen of Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, guys. Good to see you. And also with our guest today, whose name I am taking a very conscious effort to not 100% completely butcher um, <laughs> Tex Vermilier from Ovation. Um, and I don't even know what the full, oh my God, this is embarrassing. I am going to get completely axed by all the Ovation folks. What is the full name of Ovation, guys? Is it Ovation Laboratories or is it more extensive than that? Isn't it Ovation Fertility? I vote for Ovation Fertility. Yeah, pretty much. Ovation fertility. Yeah. I mean, we're all in agreement then. Ovation fertility. Ovation fertility. Ovation fertility. <laughs> okay. Let's go with I it. I mean, sure. In, in the <laughs> clinic, it's always just ovation because it's the lab and that encompasses everything with the lab. And so, you know, it's just, okay, ovation knows everything about everything that goes on with all the laboratory stuff that we do. And it's, it's the all encompassing. It's the all-encompassing. They just know That's everything. Right. So um, so we're delighted to have Tex with us today. Um, you have many titles and we will go into that in a little bit. But as we were chatting before we hit the record button, um, you have some fabulous hobbies. And one of the most impressive, especially given the fact that as an embryologist, your hands and fingers <laughs> and fine motor movement is extraordinarily important. You're a welder. Um, yeah, I think called a welder is a little bit a little bit over the top. I, I like to weld. <laughs> um, I can't say that uh, all my welds stick together all the time. But um, yeah, I occasionally like to uh, yeah mend metal and put two pieces together and uh, build so, stuff. So do you do like welding art or welding functional or combination thereof? Yeah, a little bit of both. I've been known to do some horseshoe art. Um, made my mom a turkey for Thanksgiving and oh, wow. some friends, um, you know, kind of a pumpkin. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, you're, you're absolutely right. Doing such meticulous stuff with the fingers, it's nice to, you know, bang a hammer and, and get dirty and um, yeah, put the so two if, hot pieces of metal together. If one wanted to take up the art of welding or the skill of welding, what, what, what kind of training would you have to have? So, so Abby is our resident artist here. So <laughs> all, all of the pictures you can see in the background, um, she has done all of those. So this is, this is coming from our semi-professional here. Maybe, maybe it'll be a new hobby for me. I don't know. That's right. Um, yeah. Um, education, YouTube and Pinterest. That's my probably, that, those are my go-tos. Yeah. Self-taught, never took a class, just kind of read a book and uh, went to town. So, yeah. Wow. What kind of equipment do you need to get? I mean, do you just a blowtorch? Yeah, no. So you've got, I mean, there's different, <laughs> definitely different kinds, but I tend to do arc welding, um, which is just usually it's kind of a box with high ampage electric um, electrodes. And yeah, you just sort of uh, put two pieces of metal together and use a, a hot uh, arc to, to put 
put them to, to meld them together. Um, but there's a whole bunch of different types that you can use in regards to you know proper torch and so on and so forth. But what's the biggest thing you've ever made? Oh, um, that's a good question. I mean, I've done some welding on the car before, in the antique car. Oh, wow. Wait, the car uh, that you drive? Um, yeah, I restored a uh, old plastic car. Yeah, so I've done wow. a little bit of welding on that. So yeah, that is cool. <laughs> So you welded something and then you got in and you drove it. <laughs> um, I did. Yes, I still I still do. I hadn't fallen apart yet. Doors are still on. So that's a good sign. I think you can call yourself a welder, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I will take that title. Have <laughs> so you ever, ever worried about with this hobby that you have that may not, not be a great hobby for an embryologist since your hands are so important in your daily work? And eyeballs for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you've got to make sure you wear the proper, you know, thick leather gloves and welding helmet. And in fact, uh, funny story, I, I was uh, in an airport and doing some uh, flying uh, last week and uh, saw someone in the airport with a welding helmet on as part of their uh, anti-COVID PPE. protection. So that's right. PPE, that's one way to do it. Hey, sure he was there you go. very hot, but uh, yeah, but yeah, proper equipment and you should be, you should be okay. And again, it's kind of, you know, you can't really hurt anything other than, you know, your hands, but uh, if the weld is not good, you just other cut it yourself, off. And, you know. <laughs> well, true. A little burns here and there, but uh, yeah, if, it, if you don't like what you do, you just kind of cut it off and try again wow. with the welding that is. Yeah. So, so do y'all remember from medical school when they taught us about like, like welders and like being worried about an MRI because they tend to get like little micro fragments. Yeah, of, I do remember that. Do you remember like back in your brain somewhere? Yeah. But, hey, Susan, I wouldn't have thought about that, but I just happened to have an MRI last week, my first one ever. And they asked questions like that. Like, do you have shrapnel? Do you have, I'm like, no, no. <laughs> so good thing to know, Tex, if you ever have an MRI. You might see yeah. an MRI machine or something. I may need to rethink this hobby then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. I enjoy it. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, Abby, do you have our question of the week? I do have a question of the week, and I'll try and sort of summarize this. I, we have a um, listener who says, my husband and I just got married. I'm 27 and he's 28. He just started law school this week, and the ideal plan would be to wait until he's out of law school to start a family. However, I'm worried about waiting three years to get pregnant. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have a crystal ball? So the short answer to that one is that my crystal ball has been in the shop for over 12 years now, and they seem to show no signs of returning it. So I don't have a crystal ball. What about the two of you? Well, I don't think we have a crystal ball, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we could offer some a, a couple like this. You know, I, I think that any couple who is contemplating fertility and has concerns that it's very reasonable to go see a reproductive endocrinologist and have a basic workup and just kind of see how things look, have that talk with your doctor because they're going to be able to kind of match up your, your health, your age, your evaluation, kind of give you a little bit of an idea of what we expect for your fertility over the next few years. And also know that there, there are options available like for, for fertility preservation. So if you want to freeze eggs or freeze embryos for you to use in two, three, four, five years down the road, um, you know, those are, those are some options that could potentially um, take advantage of your forethought and increase your chances of having the family um, of the size of the family that you truly want to and the time frame you, you desire to have them. 
And there's also some basic tests that you can do. And, you know, certainly it doesn't indicate that if you have these tests now that you're going to still be fine in three or four years. But, you know, if you know now that your husband has a really low sperm count or you have a really unusually low egg number for somebody that's 27 or if your fallopian tubes are blocked, you already know that you've got some challenges. So it may be worthwhile to think about doing just some basic testing first so that you'll at least know that right now, hopefully everything's good and that you don't have some issues that could be a problem in the future. And I also, and this is coming from the perspective of someone who is a list maker. I live and die by checklists and I will, I'm the person who goes to the grocery store with a list, thinks of something else I need because I see it on the shelf. I pick it up, put it in my basket. I go back to my list. I write it on, I put a box next to it and then I check it. <laughs> that is that is the mentality I have of I want the record and to show that I did it and make sure that it's all documented. I am a planner to the hilt. And so... Um, for me and many of our fertility patients fall into kind of a similar basket, especially someone who is thinking ahead and asking this kind of question. Um, You want to know what your options are. And if it's something where having your own biologically related children is important to you, then plan to be more aggressive about it. Because one of the things that all of us have seen in our practices is that life happens and life happens in very unexpected and at times unkind and unfriendly ways. And so sometimes it's a cancer diagnosis. Sometimes it's a freak accident of an ovarian torsion or a car accident or whatever. Job change. You know, yeah. And and something happens that changes, you know, a, a significant other change or whatever it may be. And so I tend to go with the philosophy of if you know that you are a professional and you know, or for whatever reason, that your childbearing is going to be delayed, but that it is very important for you, be proactive about it now because your fertility starts to decline in your early 30s. It doesn't get more pronounced until mid 30s. But I've definitely had patients come in their early 30s where they've seen that decline. And we can get you pregnant one way or the other. But sometimes that one way or the other involves egg donation, sperm donation, or gestational carrier. And sometimes we can avoid that if we see someone earlier rather than later. And so it's never going to hurt to have the conversation and at least know the options, even if you don't do a single test or a single thing. So... Okay. So our topic of today is chain of custody. And whenever I think of that term, I always think of all the big crime shows because of course, you know, CSI Las Vegas is, it goes through all of that stuff. And especially as a kid and a young adult, because I'm a dork now on TV anymore because I don't have time. But I used to love all those crime shows. And so you'd see the chain of custody and all the lawyer shows where they talk about, well, something happened, da 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 da, with the evidence and blah, blah, blah. And so we can't use it in court and blah, blah, blah. Well, that also applies in the lab. And, and it's something that's super important with everything that we do. And so one of the things that we wanted to talk about with text today is once you have the eggs, once you have the sperm in the laboratory, how does everything get tracked? How do we know what happens, where, how do we keep it safe? All of those types of things. 
And Tex, if you can kind of give everybody a little bit of your background so that they understand why you know so much about this. And why we asked you here today, because you are the, with a capital T-H-E, expert, especially in all of our worlds, because all three of our labs, despite the fact that they're in Nashville and Texas and Vegas, you are the... Big kahuna. You are the technical grand poobah. Um, <laughs> and I will. Thank you. <laughs> and, and you wailed, yes. That's right. Talk, talking to me up. That's great. Well, thank you. It's, it's a great opportunity to be here and, and uh, get invited on, uh, you know, to, to share some of my experiences. Um, yeah, so I've got a pretty colorful background, to be honest. Um, I uh, graduated from Cornell University. Uh, South Texas, born and raised, and first time ever saw snow up in Ithaca, New York. Um, and I was uh, dead set to be a veterinarian. Um, thought vet school was going to be my path of uh, career choice. And, so you're from uh, Texas, and you went to Ithaca to become a veterinarian. I know. I kind of bypassed <laughs> Texas A&M. I understand. <laughs> yes. I had an opportunity to actually pole vault um, at Cornell, so I decided to go pole vault uh, at Cornell. Wow, so yeah, that's very up, cool. Up north. You have all kinds of interesting activities. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be did, one of the I topics did. of the next time we talk with Tex. <laughs> how, how to pole vault? Uh, yeah, um, I did say it was colorful. So I uh, yeah got up Ithaca, New York, um, animal science major, preset to to go to vet or, or to to go down that pathway, and then organic chemistry. Uh, kicked my butt and uh, decided to uh, kind of shift gears. So started working in the animal science uh, reproductive physiology department and did some uh, cow cloning. There's a lot of dairy cows up in the Northeast. And so got into embryo manipulation, um, you know, working with the uh, reproductive systems of the cow. And uh, actually, after university, got my first job as a human embryologist at a, a large, uh, very successful IVF um, uh, clinic up in the Northeast. And uh, did that for two years and had a, a fantastic mentor who said, hey, you know, if you want to run one of these labs at some point, why don't you go off and get your PhD? So I thought, okay, that was great. Um, so decided to go to University of Birmingham in the UK and moved to the United Kingdom, um, whereby I studied and got a, a PhD in genetics. And uh, yeah, I kind of went off and did some mouse cloning work in Japan after that for a while. Um, and then returned back to the U.S. wanting to do more clinical work. Um, was at the University of Pennsylvania for a while, and then got recruited to New Zealand and moved to Auckland uh, for two and a half years, and then came back and got recruited to start and, and build uh, what we now know as Ovation Fertility. So yeah, kind of been around the block, uh, so to speak, with regards to uh, the world. experiences. Yeah, yeah more than the, world. the block. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big and, and block. The, and the, yeah, exactly. But it's it's great to be you know back in Texas currently, and uh, yeah, kind of overseeing operations and, and the uh, scientific advancement of what we do in our network of laboratories. So um, yeah, I hope that answered your question. It did. That's <laughs> awesome. Good. That's a great background. Yeah, so, it's, uh, so tell us a little bit about why is what is what exactly is chain of custody? I mean, we see it on CSI Miami, but I mean, <laughs> that's right, that's right, and it is obviously extremely important. So it, I can imagine um, it's very scary to drop off your eggs in one room and then drop off your sperm in another room and uh, then go home with a baby. Um, so what happens in between that? So that's where you know we we take chain of custody very seriously and. In so doing, um, there's there's protocols in place whereby 
Uh, every specimen is labeled um, most likely, you know, with three identifiers, whether it be the patient's name, um, date of birth, um, in addition to a, a assigned, randomly assigned number that's specific to that uh, patient or that couple. Um, and then we actually go a step further by, you know, using you know, colored tape, different colored tape as an immediate first visual indicator that, um, you know, A matches A and, and B matches B. But every time we do a bit of a, a handoff of that specimen, um, we, we don't just, you know, leave everything on the, on the countertop and walk away and, and come back. Um, there's usually uh, what we call a manual witness. Uh, which is usually a physical person watching us do a certain procedure and identifying that everything matches up at that certain point. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, you drop off your eggs, you drop off your sperm. At some point, we need to then process that um, ejaculate or that you know, sperm sample. And so that goes through multiple tubes. And so each one of those tubes has the same patient name, has the same identifying number, has the same color. Um, and during each one of those steps whereby we go through you know, each and every one of those tubes, you know, we have a witnessing step whereby somebody else, um, usually a, a physical warm body, um, is identifying and saying, yes, text, um, you know, I can confirm that uh, patient John Deere is, uh, you know, continuing on through, you know, that particular process. But what's, what's really great is, you know, that, that's all good and, and, and dandy. You know, we need to have that, that, uh, that, that confidence in our, in our colleagues to be able to have our backs and witness. Um, but technology has, has suddenly changed that in a way whereby we're doing electronic witnessing now um, and actually implementing that into our uh, laboratories um, as we speak uh, into this month, in fact. How long has that been available? So e-witnessing has been um, available for... I want to say maybe 10 or so years. However, it, it continues to get perfected. Um, you know, originally it was uh, a laser scanning of the dish and, and using, um, uh, you know, either uh, just, you know, etching of the dish to be able to identify and record, you know, patient to patient. But now with technology, we're using, um, you know, QR codes, that small little uh, box with all those little dots in it, um, in addition to uh, typical barcodes like, you know, at the grocery store, um, and even now using RFID chips, which are, you know, radio frequency identification chips that are on each, you know, piece of uh, plastic or each, um, you know, part of the, the actual process. So how do you keep those the same if you have, you know... Do you buy like uh, a set or do yeah, you like get stuck you, on them or how does, how does that work? Like, how do you make it, how do you make sure it's the same for, you know, Mrs. Mrs. John Doe and Mr. John Doe that are married? How do you make sure that they have all the same stuff that sticks together and that it's not for Mr. and Mrs. Smith who are coming in two hours later? Yeah, great question. So before the patient even comes into the laboratory, um, usually they are, are provided a, a um, ID card, and um, on that card actually has one of these barcodes. So similar to you know if you've gone to the doctor and they do a, a timeout and they read your handband or your, or your armband, your wristband, saying that you know you are John Doe and this is who's getting ready to have a, a procedure on the left knee. Okay, so we kind of do the same thing. We confirm with the patient what they're there for. Um, we will usually scan or we'll now scan uh, their ID card. And then based on obviously the previous knowledge of knowing what sort of cycle type they're coming uh, to the lab to do, um, you're right, just uh, what you said, Susan. We, we print off a sheet of all these labels specific to that um, cycle type for that couple and literally peel those barcodes off of those sheets and stick them onto each piece of plasticware um, that's going to be required for that particular cycle. So Tex, you mentioned that, um, you know, the first step is processing the eggs and the sperm. 
Can you just kind of walk us through kind of more of a simplistic path through the embryology lab of the embryos or first of the eggs and the sperm and then when they're, they're made into embryos, kind of how, what those steps are? Yeah, so you know, eggs are, are taken from a at, at egg retrieval, um, and then a sperm sample is uh, you know produced by the male, and we um, kind of clean up the sperm and clean up the eggs, and then once we fertilize the eggs with the sperm, um, we check for fertilization to make sure that sperm actually entered the egg and the DNA material has been exchanged, um, and then we keep them nice and safe um, in our laboratory and grow them out to embryos. So. Uh, usually anywhere from you know five to seven days within the laboratory, um, and then depending on what kind of cycle type, you know those embryos are more likely either uh, transferred fresh back into the woman, or they're frozen for use later. So obviously there's many many steps within that process, and that's where that chain of custody you know comes into play, making sure that uh, you know each step that we do, it's consistent with the patients that we're doing that process for. So. When you're working with embryos in particular, I mean, an, an IUI or an insemination cycle is, is more efficient in the sense that it's one and done within a day. It, but for an embryology or for uh, an IVF cycle, that stretches over a minimum of several days. I mean, it takes five days for a blastocyst to grow. And so how do you keep things straight when you've got 10, 20, however many patients, couples are going through over the course of that time because you have one laboratory and however many incubators, how do you make sure that each day when you're going to check on, you know, Mrs. Smith's versus Mrs. Doe's embryos, how do you make sure that you are looking at and working with the correct set of embryos and that all the way through those five days, it stays with the correct labeling and the correct set of, of everything and nothing gets crossed or mixed or interchanged. Great question. Yeah, great question. Um, so for starters, we only look at one patient material at a time. Okay, so we may have uh, multiple patients in the laboratory and we have multiple embryologists. Um, and these are the scientists that are looking at the embryos and, and um, you know, kind of working with the with the, um, the specimens. But um, you know, never at one point, and this is you know strictly enforced. Never at one point would you have two patients, two separate patients' materials out in the uh, work environment at the same time. Um, so in addition to that, we have kind of like a real time uh, workflow uh, whereby we know which patients, um, which patients embryos need to be looked at at certain times of the day. And so we sort of stagger that out whereby um, if someone had an egg retrieval and insemination um, yesterday, tomorrow morning, we're going to focus on you know, uh, verifying fertilization for those particular patients. And then we kind of work out, uh, depending on the rest of the day, you know, what patients' embryos need to be looked at and really keeping it um, quite structured. Um, so it uh, goes by kind of a, a schedule, so to speak. But the beauty of something like the witnessing system, our electronic witnessing system, is that every time we take um, a dish, a cultured dish, um, in, in which the embryos grow in, uh, every time we take it and take it uh, into our working, um, uh, we call it a hood, but our, our working cabinet, um, 
we scan it and we verify that uh, Mrs. Smith is, this is Mrs. Smith's dish and therefore I'm looking at Mrs. Smith's embryos and recording that accordingly. Um, and then when I go back to that incubator, I then scan the incubator, um, which houses these embryos and grows these embryos and making sure that Mr. Smith embryos or Mrs. Smith embryos are going directly back into that specific incubator. So it's um, very time consuming, but that electronic witnessing uh, system kind of gives us another um, glance as to, uh, you know, uh, protection to confirm uh, that the events are occurring correctly. So I have a question. Um, as a former IVF patient myself, I think um, one thing that patients are often the most nervous about is not even what happens in the lab, but what about those embryos that are cryopreserved to be used later on? So embryos that are getting shipped via FedEx or whatever, you know, courier system we're using to somewhere else in the country for long-term storage. And then, you know, when we're needing them, getting shipped back and forth. Can you describe how that works? I mean, like, this is really cool for like within your own system, but how, how, how are things kind of watched when you're going from one company to another company? And what are some things that we at Ovation do that might be a little bit different? Yeah, uh, another good question. So all of it, of course, is, is confirming the chain of custody up to that point where we freeze the embryos. Now, um, innovation, we use our uh, one specific courier, um, whereby we know that um, our, our, uh, our tanks, in which hold this liquid nitrogen, this very, very cold coolant, um, these tanks are verified, they're temperature controlled, they actually have a GPS tracking system on these tanks. And so we know that when we're when we're putting these embryos that are frozen um, into these tanks and shipping them from Texas to Las Vegas, uh, these tanks are monitored uh, 24/7, and we know exactly anywhere in the world where these tanks are. Um, now that unfortunately can't be said for all labs that ship. Um, you know, you can't really do that with with FedEx and um, uh, you know some other couriers. But uh, we've really taken. Um, uh, big steps to confirm and to, to make sure that um, our shipping process is, is legitimately probably the best in the industry. Um, and we do, we want to make sure that when they leave our laboratories, that when they arrive wherever they're going, um, they're in uh, you know, the same status as, as when they left. Um, and, you know, it just all kind of really depends on making sure that those cryo devices, of course, have the patient label and the numbers and if they have a tracking system with regards to, you know, witnessing, um, they could even possibly read that barcode at the receiving laboratory to confirm um, you know, materials. Another question I think patients have too is even for the embryos that are stored in each individual lab, what kind of alarms are available to, you know, if something happens in the middle of the night and the power goes off, what kind of alarms are available um, to our clinics to let everybody know that we need to get in there and take care of something? Yeah, uh, great question as well. So obviously we want to safeguard our frozen um, assets, right? Our, our frozen materials. And so these tanks, um, which hold again, liquid nitrogen and our frozen embryos at uh, roughly negative 196 degrees Celsius. Um, these tanks are monitored 24 uh, seven by physical uh, thermometer probes um, that are drilled um, from the top of the tanks and, and into inserted in the tanks. And they monitor not only the level of the liquid, um, that keeps these embryos cold, but also the temperature. And so these are run simultaneously. I think the data points are within seconds, um, you know, per, all throughout the day. And all of that goes to a network of uh, alarms. So if there's a slight breach of um, uh, temperature variation, so to speak, then 
uh, we go through a phone tree and, and we'll call um, uh, members of our experts, uh, expert team to go back into the lab 24-7, whatever time it is. It's their you know, responsibility, part of their duties. And they want to make sure that uh, these are protected um, you know, all the time. So we will go in, uh, see if there's any uh, issues. If there are, we have backup containers whereby we can move all the contents out and you know, continue to safeguard them accordingly. Um, but obviously, uh, alarm system and, and verifying that our materials and um, you know, the materials of patients are kept um, in, in proper conditions is a very, very high priority. That's awesome. That's awesome. Are there any other um, reassurances or words of advice text that you would give to our listeners when they're concerned about chain of custody, about maybe reaching out to their respective labs and that type of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, it's always a great question. Just, um, you know, ask your laboratory and say, you know, hey, what can you, uh, what, what protocols do you have in place to um, ensure that, uh, you know, chain of custody is currently uh, being actively uh, monitored as well as being done? And, you know, again, if we have a witnessing system, an electronic witnessing system, we are able to log all of that accordingly. And um, we're now getting to the visibility that uh, this may one day be supplied with uh, a patient cycle once it's complete. So you can see the time points, you can see the signatures, um, when things have done. Um, and they're even thinking about the potential of making it um, real time, whereby you get a text message when uh, embryos have been looked on. on, on day it's three. like when I get my Amazon package. I know it's exactly. at my door, I get the picture. Exactly. Picture, yeah. Absolutely. Picture. <laughs> and not only barcodes, we are getting to that, uh, you know, photo photographic part where we all see taking pictures, not necessarily of the embryos itself, but actual the, of the devices in which the embryos are being frozen on and, and the dishes of the embryos being cultured in. So um, a lot of great capabilities, but yeah, definitely that ask, so ask cool. your laboratories <laughs> what, sort of, what sort of safeguards are being used. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for going through all of that with us, Tex. We appreciate it and are looking forward to talking to you about the next lab-based episode that we're going to do with you uh, coming up here soon. But to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We would love to hear from you. You can also visit fertility.sensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit questions that you may have about your fertility journey. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. And don't hold back. We really want to help answer all your questions. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.